You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, and with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Fred Hitz. Fred is a person with considerable experience in the intelligence community. He has uh, had both experience as an operations officer. He has had senior executive jobs. He was uh, involved with operations throughout Europe, as well as eventually serving as the uh, legislative counsel for the agency that is the primary officer in liaison with the, uh, with the Hill, with Congress. And he, before he left, was the inspector general. He was indeed the first inspector general in CIA to have been, to have been confirmed by the U.S. Senate for that position. And one of the provisions of that, as I recall, Fred, was that as a result of that confirmation, you were given what in effect was direct access to the president of the United States if you were concerned about the director or the deputy director. Is that correct? It's correct, and it, it sounds very dramatic, but uh, we were instructed, I was instructed to make sure that the President and the Congress of the United States, the oversight committees, were made aware of any wrongdoing or any allegation of wrongdoing that encompassed the office of director so that uh, there wasn't the Iran-Contra kind of, of question left unsettled out there. Okay. Fred, uh, following his retirement for the agency, remained in uh, public life, as it were. He has uh, been uh, teaching both at Princeton and is currently with the uh, with University of Virginia uh, and with the, is it the Bantam School? It's the Batten School. Batten School. B-A-T-T-E-N. It's a new school of public affairs and leadership at the University of Virginia. And uh, in addition, Fred, as to his credit, at least uh, two books I'm aware of. One was The Great Game, uh, looking at the uh, uh, comparisons and contrasts between the reality and the fiction of espionage in literature. And he has just done a work called Why Spy, uh, which is taking a look at the world as it is today and answering that question for, I think, the public in general. Why do we need to spy? It always causes a certain unease among Americans, except when we're in great trouble, and then we un they want to know why we're not doing more. Fred, I'm, I'm talking to you at an interesting time, and 
of course, I take great pleasure in talking to you since I worked with you for some time in, on the U.S. Senate and, and uh, treasure those years. But I'm talking to you just on the eve of our national elections for the president. And I'm wondering if you, with your experience, with your outlook, with your present concerns, if you had an opportunity to talk to, directly to the president or to his national security advisor, what might you say about your view of the intelligence community and the intelligence today as perceived by the public? I think there's some confusion, Peter. Thank you for uh, that kind introduction. I think there's some confusion in the public's mind uh, uh, to, to be uh, speaking common parlance about it, of who's on first. Who is this, per the director of national intelligence? How does he relate to the Central Intelligence Agency and to the other agencies? Is it an alphabet soup? There are as many as 16 agencies now. Uh, there is the director of national intelligence is meant to respond to the final recommendations of the 9-11 Commission, which wanted, you'll remember, to create a physician in charge of the intelligence community with all the specialists of photo interpretation and signals collection and human source collection running around, those experts. They needed a leader of the band, somebody who would uh, organize all of their activity and uh, serve the president and his top policymakers by um, making it the most efficient operation it could be. My sense is it's become awfully big and awfully unwieldy. And it's hard for me to see that the director of national intelligence as presently constituted, i.e. not having a, uh, an operational force behind him, being in supervision of all the, the different agencies, whether he can do anything more than just cherry-pick at those issues that a president might be concerned about on a given day, rather than having a, a, a process whereby he can go from the beginning to the end of a given problem. So I by no means would recommend to the next president or his national security advisor that he undo the Intelligence Reform Act of 2004 because that would lead to more confusion. But somewhere along the line, we have to straighten out the roles and missions and straighten out the lines of, of uh, command so that everybody knows what uh, they're meant to do and there's not an unnecessary duplication, there's not an unnecessary layering of the process of collection of intelligence, analysis of it, and dissemination to the people who have to read it. It looks awfully bureaucratic to me right now. Okay. Fred, let me, if I could, take you back a little bit to when you were the Legislative Council. Uh, they were particularly uh, turbulent years, as I remember. It was an exciting time. And I cannot help but recall uh, Bob Gates, who, of course, was director, is now Secretary of Defense. In his book, Out of the Shadows, he he bemoans the fact that, that the oversight committees were so torn in responsibilities and being reelected and so forth that in many cases did not have the, the expertise, did not either take the time or have the time to truly understand the community and be effective in the oversight process. You both dealt with them directly and had a measure of oversight yourself as inspector general. 
if I, as a member of public, ask you, are you satisfied that we have sufficient oversight over the community through the oversight committees, through the internal inspector general today? I would only uh, want to qualify my answer by saying that I'm not mindful of all of the ways in which internal oversight in particular uh, operates today. But were I to characterize the congressional oversight part of it, I would say that I'm disappointed because I don't think that the oversight committees, the congressional oversight committees today, are fulfilling their role of keeping the intelligence community, but particularly CIA, from getting caught up in problems not of their own making, uh, which are maybe inappropriate for them to be involved in. And the big, for instance, is this brouhaha that's been going on for some time about uh, enhanced methods of interrogation and the idea of uh, uh, slipping for a moment. And, um, uh, extraordinary rendition, excuse me. So what I think there is that the Congress has a responsibility, the oversight committees, to say, hey, this is something that we have reservations about. We don't think this is something that the, uh, is legally appropriate for the CIA to do. We've been, as an oversight committee, through past flaps in which the executive branch has asked the agency to do some things that, in the light of hindsight, turned out to be not terribly wise. And we don't understand why uh, the CIA, for example, is operating under different understandings than the military after the Detainee Treatment Act has been passed. We don't understand why the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act procedures are not being used to govern the National Security Agency's uh, eavesdropping on Americans. We have a role to play in this. Uh, we want to be heard on it. And I think that gets into the basic argument that's been going on for eight years now with this particular administration, their notion of a unitary executive and, and sweeping all before it. Well, part of the things that they've been sweeping before it is congressional oversight. Internally, I just don't have a sense, because I'm out of the loop, as to how the Office of Inspector General or the Office of General Counsel at the agency are, are doing their oversight jobs. My sense is that it's going along. I think the Office of General Counsel was put in a very difficult position when they were given instruction by the administration, the Office of Legal Counsel at at Justice and by the White House and the, and the National Security Council to use these enhanced interrogation techniques, which, as it turned out, uh, were later rejected by a, a subsequent occupant of the Office of Legal Counsel top job. Uh, it's been a rough period of time. Would you favor a, uh, some sort of joint oversight committee? Do you think that would help both for it to be more efficient and perhaps less partisan? It's a good question. The Joint Oversight Committee would provide for a more manageable number of uh, persons 
uh, cleared to see everything that goes on in the intelligence community. It, was, it would lessen security concerns that way. It's interesting, when I was the head of, of legislative affairs at the agency, we always thought we got a better deal by pitting the House against the Senate in terms of budget levels and, and, and favorite uh, hobby horses. Uh, but it, it did run a risk in one of the earliest efforts, as you remember, Peter, when legislative oversight was set up, was to examine this prospect of a joint committee. Uh, yes, I think that ought to be looked at. But here's the difference between yours and my day on that beat and what is currently the case. We don't have the institutional memory in the staff in the same way that we used to. There have been good many changeovers. And if you're going to have a revolving committee membership by virtue of the of the regulations that set it up, i.e. no senator can stay for more than seven years or five years and the same for the House members, then obviously the premium has got to be on having a permanent staff that has an institutional memory. They're the ones that have to carry the can for this. And they have to be have some recollection of what went on before and what the limits of of uh, practice are. And my sense is that the congressional oversight part of this is not is in as good shape as it should be. One of the things that uh, comes up periodically is in talking to young people is the whole idea of public service. And of course, uh, intelligence, espionage, CIA is, is, a, is public service, albeit in a peculiar way and that people uh, 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 can be undercover and can be uh, carry out activities and operations that are, are, are covert in their nature. You deal a lot with young people, and I know when you were at Princeton, uh, you would bring some of your classes down here just to expose them to this world, and uh, which I think was terrific. What is your sense about the appeal of, of public service in intelligence uh, in, in the young folks you're dealing with today, and particularly at the uh, Banton School? There's a lot of curiosity. There is perforce a limited amount of hard knowledge, but there's a lot of curiosity and the question of motivation to get involved in it, I think is getting stronger. I think that there is a recognition that uh, this country has to have first-rate people working for its government, whether it's in the military or in the State Department or in CIA or in the Environmental Protection Agency. And uh, so I think the, the opportunity is there. One thing that exists that is different from our day, yours and my day, Peter, and the present day is that the gap between private sector salaries and government salaries has become, I would say, unbridgeable. Uh, it was, you remember President Kennedy's uh, obje objective to keep a relationship between government salaries and those available in the private sector. But the private sector salaries have jumped so much that we've lost complete control over it. Let me give you an example. In my law school class, and I will have to say this somewhat uh, facetiously, but I think it's true nonetheless, I have students who might even know might not at this time uh, 
really know their way to the clerk's office, who will be able to command salaries of $175,000 to $180,000 when they get their diploma and pass their bar uh, from uh, our law school. If they were to present themselves instead to the Office of General Counsel, they would be able probably to pull down $50,000 at the most, depending on what level they would go in. That's an unfair uh, comparison. And you compare that to the fact, or, or, and you realize that among the reasons why students are taking that more uh, that better paying job are that they've accumulated loans and obligations that they're going to have to pay back uh, really before they, they uh, uh, sort of set out on their own and that complicates the picture. So I don't think we're going to see uh, government salaries jump to the extent that it would make it comparable. Maybe in the light of the current financial crisis we'll see some of the private sector salaries come down. Certainly I'd like to see them come down for CEOs. But, you know, that, that hope that President Kennedy had seems to me to be a distant uh, dream at best. So how do we deal with that? I think the only way we can deal with that is, in government, is to offer young people advantages that are not monetary. The promise of uh, schooling at one of the, the specialized uh, uh, academies uh, somewhere along the line. Uh, uh, I think you and I would agree that probably what we worked on every day was awfully uh, exciting and, and pretty good uh, psychological food just of its own, but uh, th th these things have to be thought out if we are going to retain even the most idealistic young person. But I see a lot of interest, a lot of curiosity about it, a, 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 a lot of willingness to try it. You know, it's interesting. I, I, in talking to you and, and talking to some of the other folks who would be your peers uh, in government, time and again uh, you raise the subject of leadership. And I know you've raised that in the past when I knew you and when I've talked to you. What are you looking for in leadership today? What is it your, What is it? your generation, or you in particular, are not seeing? I, I think we're, it's, is, isn't it interesting? Because I think we're at a time now, and I mean in, this, in the context of this economic crisis, I think we're in an opportunity, we, we have an opportunity now to say to younger people, the apex of achievement is not a salary that allows you to go out and build a McMansion somewhere and and sort of uh, 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 cash in uh, before you're 35. That's there, there's not there's 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 nothing magic about that. That what you really want to do is have a job where you are interested in what you're doing, challenged by what you're doing, capable of learning, and you obviously want to be compensated at a rate that permits you to live and in the case of Washington, D.C., live, you know, within reasonable striking distance of, of the city of Washington. You don't want a salary that forces you to live beyond the Beltway in West Virginia somewhere just because there's nothing available close in. You want to be paid a reasonable sum. But 
material uh, satisfaction isn't satisfaction. We're seeing too many cases of that. People, is this all there is kind of thinking? And I think, uh, and I'll presume you and I have had a government experience where uh, the psychological rewards of doing something interesting that also benefits your country is pretty important too. And kids understand that. Students today understand that uh, uh, intellectually. The question is, when they go about living their lives and beginning to accumulate responsibilities, will they continue to, to feel that way? You know, as I, as I hear you speak this way, I, for some reason I thought back to Hubert Humphrey, who I think was described as a happy warrior, wasn't he? Right. And I, I'm not seeing that exhilaration, that, that delight in the pursuit, in their life's pursuit, in our leaders today as much. Is that your impression, and where do we yeah. get that? Well, what is I, this would be, this is really my last question, and I, I, I'd like you to feel that you're addressing now some young people who are looking at their futures, looking at possibly going into public service, but take this question. The leadership part of it is terribly important because you need, whether, it's, whether you get it from the pulpit, uh, from the synagogue or whatever, uh, uh, likewise in, in, in uh, uh, secular activity, you need somebody to stand up uh, and say, this job is worth doing and it doesn't matter what area you're working in, this job is worth doing if this is what you're, you're, you're signed up to do and you've got to do it well. And it's not a question of, of, uh, of shortcuts. To me, there are so many clear needs out there. Let's just take the whole phenomenon of terrorism, which has become an obsession since 9-11, and quite rightly so. We're now get to given, uh, given to understand that this will be the long war. We're going to be dealing with this phenomenon for a good period of time. To be able to contribute in some way towards making that less of a threat seems to me to have a lot of meaning, especially if you have somebody who's willing to put it to you that way. Now let me give you a for instance, and I don't want to get down into the business of name calling, but I think it struck a number of people that if the President of the United States, after 9-11, the day after it, said, okay, we just got slammed, and I want every one of you between the ages of 18 and 26 to give 18 months to two years to help work this thing out. Do you think there would be any dissenters, any appreciable number? I don't think so. And many of my students have told me that. If they thought that there was a system that would draw on the available manpower fairly, equitably, uh, they'd go in a, in, a, in a second. And interestingly enough, a, a, a number of substitute uh, avenues are being pursued that create this kind of experience. Admittedly, Princeton University, my alma mater that's had, got a very substantial endowment, they're talking about a gap year for high school seniors. They're going to try to make available to 10% of the entering class the opportunity to work overseas in a public service job before they show up uh, for their four-year undergrads. I say they're fortunate enough to have the wherewithal to do it, but they've sensed the need to give uh, an outlet uh, to both mature and to give back uh, to students coming in. I think there's a hunger for it. Fred, it's, it's been a delight to speak with you today. And if you'll bear with me, I'd like to end on a personal note. And that is, I was with you 
for several years, some virtually 20 years ago. But my memory of you, you were a model, was that you were in your way a happy warrior. And it was a great, it was a great leadership image for us to have who worked with you. So I want to thank you for your service and thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Peter. Those remarks mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.